Hello and welcome to another scintillating episode of the South Mims U podcast in which we're going to talk about Karl Marx. Don't worry, it's not a dull examination of his political writings or his legacy, but a more personal look at the man. Most people see Karl Marx as this driven intellectual who wrote dense books and articles about economics and politics, but he was also made of flesh and blood. A man with a wife he loved, children he doted on, and was subject to all the stresses and strains which any other man at the time had to cope with. He was, in many ways, a very ordinary person. At least that's what our specialist in political history, Laurel Canyon, thinks. Isn't that right, Laurel? You put it very nicely. He is flesh and blood, and he is ordinary. He is a man like any other man. Only he wrote Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto, two of the most influential books of the last 250 years. Yes, he did. Though one was co-authored by Frederick Engels, of course. Oh, of course, yes, yes. But he was also a man of hopes and dreams and unfulfilled ambitions, and he suffered a range of ailments and illnesses, including reoccurring boils all over his body. Boils. He'd come out in terrible pustules and pimples and pus-filled eruptions, and nowadays it would be put down to stress. Karl Marx lived a lot of his life under very high levels of stress. After all, he was arrested in his homeland, banished from France, was always short of money in England, even though he was welcomed here as a political refugee, what we now call an asylum seeker. I see. I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners don't know that about Marx the man. I mean, how did you become interested in that side of it? I've always been interested in the everyday lives of famous philosophers and writers. I think their quotidian lives reveal a lot about their thinking. Quotidian? It means the everyday. Something that occurs each day, the normal, the ordinary. Oh, I see. Right, OK. And that's the name of my new course, Quotidian Studies. Well, it sounds unusual, uh, which is a contradiction in terms, I suppose. Yes, you're right. Focusing on the ordinary is quite unusual nowadays. You see, I'm interested in things like the doodles of great philosophers or historical figures, their hobbies, that kind of thing. Doodles? You mean what they doodled while they were, I don't know, waiting to get through to a order a pizza? Well, maybe not ordering a pizza, not in Victorian London, but, you know, sitting there just thinking. Oh, like Karl Marx thinking up the theory of surplus value. Yes, something like that. You know, how he'd daydream at his desk or watch the carriage going up and down Dean Street in Soho when he lived there, or later when he lived on Maitland Park Road in Belsize Park. Oh, did he live in those places? They, they sound so ordinary, so quotidian. Um, he did live in those places and quite a few more. Uh, he was always moving, always trying to find cheaper rents, even though he was getting about £350 a year from Engels to keep him going. Doesn't sound like a lot. It's the equivalent of around £30,000 in today's money. Amazing. I wish I had a friend like that. Well, maybe if you define a new political philosophy, you might find a benefactor like Engels. Uh, OK. <laughs> right. Well, just as a sidebar, uh, your name... My name? Laurel Canyon. Um, that's an actual place, isn't it? I mean, a, a place in California. It is. I'm always asked this question. It's a quotidian question. Mm -hmm. If you overuse a word, it starts to become annoying. Oh, sorry. I was just... 
just being curious. My dad was, I'll put it bluntly, a 60s hippie pothead. He and my mother spent years on the road, both in England and in America, and I was born at the Isle of Wight Festival during the famous Jimi Hendrix gig. Amazing. August 31st, 1970. Uh, during which song? My mum went into labour during the Moody Blues set and I was born during Hendrix's performance of Foxy Lady. Cool. Respect. Now, shall we talk about Karl Marx and children's books? Oh, yeah, sure. Sorry, sorry. Our, our listeners might be surprised to learn that Karl Marx actually attempted to write books for children. Well, we think he did. It's a long-lost manuscript which seems to be in his handwriting. How do you know it's his handwriting? He had a notoriously bad penmanship. In fact, there's an apocryphal story. Apocryphal? It might not be true. Oh, I'm certainly learning some useful words in this podcast. Uh, OK. Anyway, the story goes that Marx was so desperate for money that he applied for a job as a clerk with a railway company, but he didn't get it because his handwriting was so bad. Well... He wanted a, a job in an office. Karl Marx did. That's what we think. I would love to have been there and when he was there for the interview. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this big German dude with a huge beard and pustules all over him. I'm thinking of turning it in, into a short play. Oh, you should do it. You know, put it on during the South Mims Theatre Festival. I might just do that. I'm looking forward to it. OK, so, so this manuscript, this kid's story... Why would he want to write for kids? He loved children. He had quite a few of them, but tragically, some of them died. Oh, well, how many kids did he have? Well, we know he had seven, and he could have fathered ten. Really? <laughs> All that free love, eh? <laughs> That's a curiously dated comment, if I may say so. Oh, is it? Oh, OK. Four of his children died in childhood, and it scarred him. So he was short of money, always moving house... And he suffered the loss of four children. No wonder he suffers from stress. But he was a driven man. He wrote articles and books despite all that stress. And he also found time to try and write a children's book. He was well known as an indulgent father. He loved to play with his kids. He made funny faces and used funny voices. And the house or flat in which the Marxists lived was always full of laughter. You're completely changing my view of Karl Marx. It's amazing. So you can imagine how thrilled we were to find a lost manuscript in the files of a Victorian gentleman who once lived in South Mims. Well, who was that? Thomas Lowell Simmons. He was a minor Victorian poet and he worked in a publishing house in London. And it seems Marx sent the manuscript to Simmons to get his opinion. And it was rejected, right? Well, they said the handwriting was too bad and that he should get it typed up. And that was a relatively new technology at the time. What typewriters were? Yes. But Marx couldn't afford a typist, so the manuscript languished in Simmons' files until they were bequeathed to the South Mims U by his great-grandson. OK, so this story, this kid's story, I mean, is it, is it any good? Well, judge for yourself... We asked one of our drama students to record it. You know, like an audio book. And we're hoping it'll generate some interest amongst Marxist scholars and political studies students. Oh, can we hear it? Sure. It's about a, a chimney sweep called Archie and how he discovers the iniquities of the capitalist system. Oh, well, so it's not, it's not 
Harry Potter or anything. Uh, no, but I believe it could be a brilliant way to get children to understand how the world really works. You mean teach Marxism to children? Well, why not? Little children. The younger, the better. Listen to the story. Little Archibald had no toys. None that had been manufactured, that is. His playthings came from the rubbish he found on the grimy streets of London. Little Archie did not know that he was a member of the proletariat, but in his heart he understood that his family had no hope of a warm home in a leafy London square, the kind of home he'd been in many times to sweep chimneys, entering through the scullery, slapped by busy maids with cullised hands, which were as hard and as grey as pumice, reeking of carbolic and sweated labour. Archie, small and nimble, with bowed, rickety pale legs and exceptionally flexible joints, could slither up a chimney faster than a hungry squirrel planning for winter and certain of a nutty reward. Archie worked for Lurkins, the sweep, a thick-set man with evil eyes and a low brow, who paid him a shilling a week, even though the boy's labour yielded ten shillings at least. As yet, Archie did not understand that this was exploitation. He was too young. He imagined that his lowly station was natural, just the way things are in a capitalist society. But he changed his mind one morning when he met Clara Watkins in the basement workshop of a Dean Street toy maker. Archie was there to clean the chimney. When we stoke the fire... Clara explained. It gets ever so sooty in here. My face gets sooty, my hands go black, my hair smells of coal and all the wood shavings and dust get mixed up with the glue we use and it's a right mess, I can tell you. Archie liked Clara the moment he set eyes on her. She was a thin girl, two or three years older than him, with mousy hair tied up and wrestled into a bonnet which could hardly contain it. She was clever. Archie knew that straight away, very clever. Too clever to be peddling a lathe which turned furiously to shape the cup part of the cup and ball toys in which the toy maker, one John Bridlington, specialised. Clara took a break to eat a lump of cheese and watch Archie ply his trade. Don't you get frightened when you climb up chimneys? she asked. I'm used to it, Archie said. What if you get stuck? Then Mr Larkins would come and rescue me. He was not sure that Mr Lurkins would come to the rescue. Boys like you are ten a penny, he often said, when in a particularly bad mood. Aren't you afraid of splinters or cutting off one of your fingers on that machine? Archie said, pointing at the mechanism at which Clara sat, a line of thick lumps of wood on one side and a box of finished cups on the other, with their sleek, smooth handles. Not really, she said. You get used to the splinters. I have to work to help me ma. She's sickly and me dad's, well... We don't know what happened to me, Dad. We needs the money. Archie was curious. How much is the pay? Good question, little Archie, but the wrong one. Clara smiled and crossed her arms. It was a challenge. She wanted Archie to interrogate her. He thought for a moment, then asked what he hoped would be the right question. Uh, how much do the cup and balls toys sell for? You're a quick one, aren't you, little un? That is the right question. These ear toys sell for a shilling a piece. They're fine quality and only the children of the rich can buy them. And how much of that shilling goes to feed your family? Archie asked. Perhaps a penny, perhaps not. That's not fair. Of course it's not fair. 
I make the toys and Mr Brillington sells the toys. I create the value of the toy. But when you take away the cost of the wood and the cost of the coal to keep me warm and the rent for the workshop, I don't get the value that I create on this here machine, spinning from morning till night. Mr Bridlington, the capitalist, takes that value from me. The difference between what he pays me and what he sells the toy for is surplus value. That's how he gets his profit. It's exploitation. It's alienation. It's just not fair. Archie liked the sound of the big words, but he didn't know what they meant. Despite this fact, he felt angry on behalf of this clever girl. He resolved there and then, covered in soot, his back aching from clinging to the smoky bricks of the chimney, to change the world, which should always be the point of anything you do, now or when you grow up. Well, maybe it needs a bit more action and magic or something, um, and less uh, theory. Uh, no, that's not the point. The point is, it's a fascinating insight into the way Karl Marx thought about how political theory can be communicated to ordinary people. Quotidian people. No, that's not how you use the word. My point is, why not start teaching kids about the iniquities of capitalism earlier? That's if you think capitalism is unfair. I mean, what if you don't? Well, the entire system is geared towards teaching kids that capitalism is natural and that everything is a commodity. Childhood, personal relationships, personal communications, play, imagination. All those things are being colonised by huge corporations who make obscene profits and who actively work to impoverish our lives and taking away the jobs that those children will need when they grow up. Well, that's a bit bleak, isn't it, Laurel? It is bleak out there, which is why we're starting a publishing venture in our political studies department, something like Quotidian Books. Right, Quotidian, my new favourite word. We're going to publish the entire Little Archibald and the surplus value of Toys book, and we're going to also do books for all ages. Including babies and toddlers, surely not. Yeah, babies and toddlers. Lift the flat Marxism. Well, how does that work? Well, simple. Here's one I wrote. See the big blue van? Where's the big blue van? Who owns the big blue van? The big corporation does. And where's the driver? There's the driver. Is the driver happy? No, the driver is sad. He's on zero hours contract and his family is hungry and sad. Uh, well, it's, it's compelling, at least. Well, my favourite one is Burst the Billionaire's Bubble. <laughs> Here's an advanced copy. Oh, right. Well, nice pictures. Um, oh, <laughs> that, that billionaire looks a lot like Jeff Bezos. It is not Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos is a lovely, generous man. Oh, right. I get it. Legal told you to say that. Yeah, right. Well, look at the book. It was illustrated by a young woman in our arts department. She's captured a look of psychopathic greed very well, don't you think? Oh, it's quite scary. Well, the text is funny. Bloaty the billionaire has taken all our money. He has put it in a big, big bubble. And no one can touch it but Bloaty and his nasty friends like Trumpet, the orange-faced president of the world. But Bella has a sharp, sharp mind and even sharper pin. A pin made by workers all over the world. And she's going to burst Bloaty the billionaire's 
bubble. Oh, yes, she is. Do you want to come and help her burst it? Yes, you do. Oh, I like it. That's, that's really good, Laurel. I wish you all the best in your new venture. And I, I think there's hope for us all as a new generation of children learn the truth about capitalism. That's the end of this episode. And thank you for listening. And we should celebrate the quotidian things in life and fight back to claim them for ourselves, our families and our communities. Goodbye. See, I got that word in again. Clever. Clever.